Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have all crazy martinis for you today. Crazy, crazy, crazy across the board. And, Jim, we're going to start with the third-ranking Democrat in the House of Representatives, the House Majority Whip, Jim Clyburn of South Carolina. He has defied Godwin's law and so that makes him the immediate loser of this debate. He has compared President Trump to Adolf Hitler, and apparently it's not the first time he's done it. This was an interview with NBC News. He says he sees all sorts of parallels with the rise of Trump and the rise of Hitler. Here's what he said. Adolf Hitler was elected chancellor of Germany, uh, and uh, he went about the business of discrediting institutions. Uh, to the point uh, that people bought into his stuff to allow anybody to discredit the press, discredit the military, to discredit uh, our leadership uh, in both in the Congress uh, and outside. We are asking from dire for dire consequences, and I think it's time for the Congress, House and Senate, to grow spines and do what is necessary to protect this democracy. This man and his family are the greatest threats to democracy of my lifetime. The greatest threats to democracy in his lifetime. Jim Clyburn was born July 21st, 1940, Jim. I'm guessing there's been a few things, (laughs) even right around that time, that were probably a greater threat to uh, democracy. Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, the Cold War, Soviet Union. Uh, This is not the first time he's done this, though. Uh, Following the State of the Union address back in uh, February, I guess it was, uh, Clyburn was talking with CNN's Don Lemon. And uh, this is the CNN story. Clyburn said, much of what's going on in the country today can be compared to what Hitler did as Chancellor of Germany. He cited Hitler's silencing of the media, disruption of the judicial process, and the intertwined system of church and state, citing how swastikas were hung in churches. He says, quote, when I see and hear and experience what is going on in the country today, I think back to that time, and I really believe that we as Americans had better get a handle on things. If we don't, we could very well see ourselves going the way of Germany. Jim, when I look at uh, a lot of the things on that checklist there, has Trump been critical of the media? Yeah. Silencing the media? Mm, That's a different story. Disruption of the judicial process? I'll let you talk about it, obviously. But uh, uh, Jim Clyburn has failed when it comes to Godwin's law. You know, Greg, when you said, oh, this isn't the first time Clyburn has done something like this, I thought you were going to say uh, his reference to his defense of Congresswoman Ilan Omar, where he said that, you know, well, you know, she's got, you know, more more up close personal uh, experience with discrimination. She was born in Somalia. She had to escape the violence from that country, spent time in a refugee camp. And quote, he says, I'm serious about that. There are people who tell me, well, my parents are Holocaust survivors. My parents did this. It's more personal with her. I've talked to her. And I can tell you she's living through a lot of pain. Kind of a look, you can't criticize her comments about APAC buying people's uh, loyalty and things like that uh, because she's a refugee, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of people kind of cringed at his invocation of, look, you children of Holocaust survivors, stop thinking it's all about you guys, you know, and things like that. Um, other thing, listening to that first uh, bit of audio you, audio you played there, Greg, was Nazism all about discrediting the military? 
kind of remember it being very militaristic and, you know, celebrating the Luftwaffe and, and all of that and, you know, invading lots of other countries and things like that. You know, I don't remember, uh, you know, the, the Nazi regime saying, ah, the military. Who should listen to those guys? Yeah. Um, look, there are, a lot, there are a lot of times the president will say things and, and describe events from history and get it completely wrong. Uh, his assertion that the Soviet Union went into Afghanistan in order to prevent terrorism uh, would be a kind of really vivid example of that. But Trump, when he does that, gets a lot of grief for it from the media, as I think he should. When Clyburn does this stuff, you don't see that same reaction. Everybody just kind of shrugs at it. And I, do, I, I think you do damage in two directions when you run around and make uh, compare Trump to Hitler all willy-nilly. Uh, the first is it's just flat out not true. It's not accurate. Um, for all the times Trump has wanted to do something that violates the Constitution, um, either Congress steps in, we saw the imposition of uh, sanctions against Russia that Trump didn't want to do, et cetera, et cetera, or the courts have stepped in. Um, the so-called Muslim ban got you know changed pretty dramatically in order to meet a constitutional standard. Even that saw all kinds of legal challenges. So we have a Constitution. We have checks and balances. Trump is not a dictator. He may want to be. He may, you know, just believe that, by golly, I'm in charge. And I, if I say, hey, you know, jump, everyone else should say how high. You know, I'm not saying his impulses are great. But it is a distortion of the record to argue that we're sliding into totalitarianism or something like that. And the other thing is, I think it's a, um, I don't know what you could say, an, an insult, uh, inappropriate, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, almost a, a form of cultural narcissism to argue that Trump is running around tweeting nasty things about reporters and to say that that's akin to totalitarianism. No, it's not. We can argue about whether it's appropriate for a president, but that's a different thing. And just for perspective, China's got a million Uyghurs in re-education camps right now. Okay. That's totalitarianism. That is uh, authoritarianism. That is an oppression of people's rights. What Trump is doing is not really oppressing people's rights. And I think that this does harm both to just generally to our general discourse, when we treat bad behavior on the part of the president, obnoxiousness, uncouthness, saying all kinds of things, it's an insult to actual history and what actually happened when we put the routine or maybe even slightly out of the ordinary um, fights of American politics in 2019 and say that that's comparable to Nazi Germany. And I'd like to see, it'd be really nice if Jim Clyburn could get called out more on this. Um, my suspicion is the media is kind of embarrassed when the Democrat goes off this, on these tirades and they just kind of avert their eyes. And that, that's what makes it one of our crazy martinis for today, Greg. All right, let's move on to our second crazy martini now, Jim. And uh, apparently award season spans quite a bit of time since this happened over a year ago. But the Lear Center, as in Norman Lear, the extraordinarily liberal TV producer who made some really good TV shows like All in the Family and the Jeffersons and Good Times and I think One Day at a Time and a number of others. Uh, good director, good show creator, still alive, late 90s, still very active. He was involved with the creation of the people for the American way and so forth, but very far to the left. And so he's affiliated with the Lear Center, obviously, at USC, and uh, they've given an award to CNN's Parkland Town Hall. Congrats, says CNN's communications team, to Jake Tapper and team who helped, quote, advance the national conversation on gun control and violence. 
in case you forgot what happened at this town hall in February of 2018, here's a couple of little excerpts here. Here's a Parkland dad talking to Marco Rubio. And look at me and tell me you accept it and you will work with us to do something about guns. Now, I think what you're asking about is the assault weapons ban. Yes, sir. So let me be honest with you about that one. If I believed that that law would have prevented this from happening, I would support it. But I want to explain to you why it would not. Oh, and then there were the students. Senator Rubio, it's hard to look at you and not look down the barrel of an AR-15 and not look at Nicholas Cruz. But the point is, you're here. And there are some people who are not. Senator Rubio, can you tell me right now that you will not accept a single donation from the NRA in the future? So this turned into a giant rally for gun control. Scott Israel, who at that time was Broward County Sheriff, positioned himself as the hero and Dana Lash in the NRA as the villain. And uh, Jim, this just basically reminded me of the Mondale funeral, basically turning into a major political event. So what do you make of the fact that CNN's been honored for this? Yeah, when you said it was the Lear Center, uh, Greg, I thought I thought it was the King Lear, <laughs> as in the madness of King Lear, the the Shakespeare play. I thought it was a reference to things going. So that's that's a little bit surprising. Um, a little bit more seriously, I think this indicates Republicans and folks on the right have been complaining about media bias for a really long time, and I can understand if everybody listeners like, oh, you know. There go Jim and Greg again. Ah, oh, we've been hearing about this all the time. This you know, this is all yeah. Okay, I get it. Compared what used to be Howard Kurtz's program on CNN, uh, he left to Fox and uh, Reliable Sources got taken over by Brian Stelter. Now, uh, Howard Kurtz, I've been on his program a bunch of times on pretty good terms with him. I can remember back when he was the media reporter for the Washington Post. and He did, uh, was probably one of the first mainstream reporters who really paid attention to the Dan Rather story back in 2004. And Howard Kurtz was a pretty good example of how the media... Uh, as an industry and as an institution policed itself. He was not officially an ombudsman, but his beat was the media world. And so when there was a controversy or some news story going on involving some other media institution, his job was to write about it at the Washington Post, and he would talk about it on his, his CNN show. And I think, you know, I don't think it's going too far to say there were days that conservatives would really like what Howard Kurtz was writing about, and there are days they wouldn't like what Howard Kurtz was writing about. I think, you know, Howard Kurtz did his best to call it down the middle, I think if you watch his Fox show, you can say he kind of drifted to the right over the years, but uh, maybe he would agree with that. Maybe he wouldn't. But the gist being, you could tune in to Howard Kurtz and you'd get a feeling that he was generally trying to call it, you know, call him as he saw him. You watch Brian Stelter's show. I'm trying to remember, Greg, can we ever recall any moment where Brian Stelter evaluated a, a media institution and said, wow, this is liberal media bias. Uh, this this completely validates every criticism conservatives have been making. This is bad behavior. Uh, any of that? You know, my, my, I cannot recall that off the top of my head, Greg. Can you? No, he defended CNN even uh, with the Covington kids, even after more of the facts were in. So, uh, right. No. When nobody else wants to defend the mainstream media, Brian Stelter will rush into the breach. He is the guy who will basically explain away every bad decision. Almost every episode includes some segment on here's why Fox News is bad. He never gives Fox News credit for anything. Um, Brian Stelter kind of indicates the the shift that we've seen in the media's self-assessment of its of the job that it's doing. Um, you could he, you could see in some circles, particularly after the 2016 election, a whole bunch of media institutions, including like the New York Times and places like that, saying, you know, wow, we really didn't see this coming. We must have been completely out of touch with a lot of these places in the country. 
we overlooked a large segment of the American public. Messages that we thought were inherently xenophobic and unappealing must have more appeal than we thought. Um, it's time to reevaluate whether we're doing our jobs as well as we could. Now, we can argue about whether, you know, how well they've done that since then. But in Brian Stelter's world, that didn't, you know, that not only was that conversation not happened, that conversation was not needed. Um, that there very much was this sense of, okay, you know, so you look at this, you look at the, the media giving itself an award for that town hall, which is basically a pep rally for gun control. This is what they think journalism is supposed to be. It's supposed to attack Dana Lash. It's supposed to celebrate uh, uh, police chiefs who do a lousy job. It's supposed to demonize the NRA. It's supposed to demonize Republican lawmakers. Like that to the Norman Lear, I, I almost said Norman Bates, but that, you know, <laughs> we can argue how much of a difference there would have been. The Norman Lear's eyes, that's exactly what journalism is supposed to be. It's supposed to be heavy-handed propaganda. It's supposed to demonize conservatives and Republicans. Um, and I think, you know, when you give rewards to that, you're basically creating an incentive. Uh, as, you know, Jake Tapper, who I, I we wondered about how much you, how much you really... Uh, uh, what he really thought of that as it became more and more obvious that the story coming out of Parkland was not, oh, look at how terrible our gun laws are, but oh, look at what an astonishingly bad job the police down there did both before the shooting, during the shooting, and after the shooting. And none of that was important that night. The most important thing was to make Dana Lash look like the villain. So uh, another crazy and I think egregious moment in the uh, media's definition of how it's supposed to go about its job. All right, let's go on to our third and final crazy martini. And this is a Twitter fight now between the president of the United States and the husband of one of his top counselors and his former campaign manager, Kellyanne Conway. Uh, George Conway is an attorney. Uh, he was a pretty obscure figure other than being married to Kellyanne um, over the last few years. Uh, but he's uh, tweeted with increasing regularity, always critical of the president, sometimes talking about how he thinks he's uh, a crook based on the Mueller investigation and all sorts of other decisions the president is making. Always very, very harsh criticism. And then in the last few days, he tweeted out the guidelines of narcissistic personality disorder and followed it up with, uh, all Americans should be thinking seriously now about Trump's mental condition and psychological state, including and especially the media, Congress, and the vice president and cabinet. Another tweet. Once someone understands narcissistic personality disorder, they understand you. And meaning Trump, and why you're unfit and incompetent for the esteemed office you temporarily hold. Now, until recently, Trump was not responding to this guy, but now he has. Tweet, quote, George Conway, often referred to as Mr. Kellyanne Conway by those who know him, is very jealous of his wife's success and angry that I, with her help, didn't give him the job he so desperately wanted. I barely know him, but just take a look. A stone-cold loser and husband from hell. And George Conway saying, great, now that you've retweeted me, a lot of people know that I think you have narcissistic personality disorder and you need to be out of office and you've raised my profile. Thanks so much. Uh, so, Jim, uh, it's always been awkward to watch Kellyanne defend the president and her husband so publicly bash him. You wonder what their dinner conversations are like. Seems a little bit different than the Madeline Carville relationship from a generation ago where the other usually didn't weigh into uh, the other one that closely. But uh, what do you make of this? What, what is really going on here and does it matter? Yeah. Uh, you know, there are times where you're like, ooh, this is a delicious fight to watch between two figures. This is just kind of uncomfortable and cringe-inducing. Um, and you just wonder, what's life like for Kellyanne Conway when every single day, oh, what did my husband and my boss tweet at each other today? Um, 
I, you know, look, interesting irony. I'm, I'm sure almost every husband whose wife works in, in a workplace has had times they've been really irritated with their wife's boss. Um, there have been times where how could you not give her that big promotion or how could you, you know, not think she did a good job on that or something like that. Um, but we're, we're well beyond that. Right? This isn't just supporting your wife. This isn't a they're there. You know, he doesn't deserve somebody of your talents, honey. No, no, this is uh, this, this is, you know, putting it out there for the whole world to see. Um, and, and this is a, you know, again, if you're George Conway, there's, there's it's like there's one of two things you can do. You can say, honey, I can't believe you're working for this guy. I really think he's a dangerous narcissist. I think he's, you know, you shouldn't be president. Um, I don't think you should be worried. You know, I'm really worried about you working for this guy. It's be bad. All, all the things that you assume he, he said behind closed doors, who knows? I don't think you make your wife's life any easier when you decide to put it out for the whole wide world to see. I, I don't, you know, it just doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't strike me as a, uh, as a, as a, you know, terribly supportive thing to do, but look, maybe your mileage may vary. Maybe things are different in your marriage. The second thing that comes out of that, though, is that for Trump to just go after this guy, you know, I, I'm struck by the fact a couple of days ago, both in private meetings with donors and on Twitter, Trump went to great lengths to emphasize to people that he did not call Tim Cook of Apple, Tim Apple, during public remarks that were that were televised or on video. We could all watch the video in which you know, Trump was speaking quickly and he, he called him Tim Apple. Tim Apple thought it was funny and renamed him. put renamed his Twitter handle to, uh, Tim Apple. You know, out of all the things Trump has ever done, calling Tim Cook Tim Apple doesn't break the top five hundred. <laughs> you not break the, the top five. Like, oh, okay, you know, like Greg, how many times have I called you Cam? <laughs> right, Hugh. Right. I mean, you know, sometimes you get people's names wrong. It's not the end of the world. It's not some sort of giant scandal or something. It just happens. Everybody kind of laughs, and then you move. Um, remember, there a couple of years, you know, during the Obama presidency, every once in a while, somebody would call, accidentally call him Osama, and everybody go, Ooh, you know. But it's not like anyone was saying, "Ah, oh, you know, I think the president of the United States actually perpetuated the uh, the worst terror attack in American history." Um, okay, only a few of the truthers did, uh, but you know, it, it's that rare truther birther merging you, you had out there. But Trump has a fascinating ability to get wrapped up in the least consequential <laughs> things. That you'd think the president, you, you just, you'd think the president of the United States would have bigger things. You'd, you'd figure the first 10 paragraphs of the president's daily briefing from the intelligence community every day would give you more to worry about than what George Conway is saying about you on Twitter. But for some reason, Trump gets very upset about it. You know. Ah, yeah, so there we go. That's, um, that's where we are. That's our presidency. And, uh, you know, the really awful thing is, Greg, we look at this president and all the stuff that he's doing. And it's still better than all the nonsense we're seeing on the Democratic side. <laughs> it really is. That's how bad it is. Okay, there's two two theories out there. I don't know if they're conspiracy theories. One theory is is that that's just the way quote unquote this town works. Doesn't matter if you're married. You've got your interests over here. Your clients. If you're George Conway, Kellyanne's got her job with the president. Doesn't mean that they're having a rough spot in their marriage. They've just got different professional interests and. Well, it spilled out into the public sphere. Other people are out there saying this is Kellyanne's cry for help through her husband. uh, (laughs) And that's how this is getting out. That's really her voice through his Twitter account. So what do you make of this? If this is a distraction from something, how bad is whatever it is they're trying to distract (laughs) us from? The other thing is, is that I don't know about you, as the Democratic primary, you know, day by day, but week by week turns into Thunderdome, Greg. (laughs) 
I'm kind of enjoying this. I mean, every single day, it's kind of like, okay, ooh, who's dropped opposition research on who? <laughs> I'm sorry, on whom? Right. Uh, in in you know so far or. You know, what has Beto O'Rourke jumped on today? You know, the kind of like, this is actually a pretty good news environment for the president. Uh, Apparently his poll numbers are kind of increasing. Why would you need to jump out and distract from something? Unless, you know, maybe the Mueller, you know, the the moment the Mueller report comes out, people aren't going to be talking about, hey, what's what's up with the Conway's marriage these days? (laughs) You know, I think the, I'm not quite sure what it's distracting from and what would work all that well. But hey, what, you know, that's fine. The other thing is the idea of this is preserving some sort of, you know, viable brand identity. Look, Greg, is there any way Kellyanne Conway is not thought of as a Trump advisor when his presidency ends? Oh, no. That's her label for life. Right. I mean, I suppose somebody at the end of the Trump presidency is going to come out and say, yeah, I was the one who wrote the op-ed in The New York Times. But I don't think that person suddenly gets a, you know, oh, kudos. You were trying to fight against Trump from within. I think if you work for Trump, you're by and large going to be, you know, defined by that, fairly or not. But um, it's already done so much for so many people, Greg. I mean, Michael Cohen and uh, Manafort and, and John Kelly and all the number of times he facepalmed throughout his time as White House <laughs> chief of staff. You know, uh, if, if you really don't think Trump should be president, don't go work for him. Seems like a pretty straightforward uh, philosophy here. And if you are going to work for him, well, I think you have an obligation to do your best to, you know, yes, you can try to steer him in the direction you prefer, but you got to, you know, and try to enact out the policies of this president. And, and it just seems like this, you, I don't understand why you'd try to play both sides of the fence in this kind of environment. But uh, so I, I don't think it's a I think I'm going to take everybody at their at their face value and that this is really what George Conway thinks. And this is really what Donald Trump thinks. And I'm sure every single day, Kelly and Conway is like, oh, dear God, Calgon, take me away. <laughs> On that note, Jim, we'll do it all again tomorrow. See if we have three more crazies. Looking pretty good. <laughs> Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And tune in again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.